Well, let's do a little review. In Ephesians chapter 1 to 3, we talk about our wealth in Christ, and it really talks about who we are in Christ and what an amazing set of things we learn. We were once spiritually dead, but now we're made spiritually alive. We've been raised up. We've been given every spiritual blessing. We've been seated in the heavenly places, and God refers to us as his own treasure, his inheritance. And then we see what the church is. It's the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is God's household, a dwelling place of God in the spirit. And it is the very revelation of the wisdom of God, even to the angels. And so Paul twice prays. He prays that we might realize and understand these truths and then possess their reality in our lives so that we live as those made alive. We work together as a body of Christ um, to show God's wisdom. In Ephesians 4, uh, 1 to 6, 9, we have our walk in Christ. In light of these truths, in Ephesians 1 to 3, the question is, how shall we then live? And we've looked at a couple of these walks. We've looked at the group walk, Chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. And this is how the church works. God doesn't leave us alone. He puts us in a group. And we saw that uh, the emphasis there is, first of all, to protect the unity. Philippians 2, 2, being of the same mind, united in spirit, maintaining the same love, intent on one purpose. And we are to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And then there's diversity, the diversity of gifts exercising our spiritual gifts that God's given each one of us for the common good. And it works in a sense of community. We often call this body life, building up one another in love, working together, caring for one another, so that everybody matures in Christ. And then the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the changed life walk. Chapter 4, 17 to 32, not living like the spiritually dead, no, we've been made alive by Christ. We've been raised up with Christ. We've been given resurrection power to live differently. And so as those made alive in Christ, we display the character of God. And he gave us those five examples of where we live, showing the, the character of God in our lives and uh, the proof of the resurrection of Christ. And that brings us to the third walk in Ephesians 5. 1 to 7, and you saw the command there in verse 2 that we should walk in love. Over the years speaking on this passage, uh, you know, you try to catch the essence of a passage. I've uh, labeled this the compassionate walk on one occasion. I, I um, think I have that up there. Um, I've, on another occasion, I, I labeled it the changed heart walk. And this morning, we're, we're calling it the identifying walk. This passage is right in the middle. You know, there's a group walk, and then he talks about the changed life walk. Now he's going to talk about the walk of love, and then walking as children of light, and then walking in wisdom. And, and this one's right in the middle, uh, and it builds on what precedes it. Love has a special place in the Christian walk. Um, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, but now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. 
2 Peter 1, 5 through 7, Peter lays out a series of qualities, but the last one, and they build, but the last one is love. And then he says, if, if you have these qualities and they are increasing, they will render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.14, which is the parallel passage to the changed life walk, um, he says, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Over all these other character qualities that he talks about, he says, put on love. It holds everything together. And there are lots of other passages to indicate the importance of love in the Christian life. But I suspect when I said this is love is the identifying walk, a particular scripture uh, came to mind. And of course, it's in... Oops, it's in John 13, 34, and 35, where the Lord Jesus is in the upper room just before his death, and he told the disciples, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, your love for one another, all men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. The concept of love being a key distinctive mark of genuine faith in the Lord Jesus is seen in the letters of Paul, Peter, and John. And I know this is kind of an aside, but I want you to catch this. Paul, in Ephesians 1.15, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you. I've heard that you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Well, what's the evidence? He immediately goes on and says, and your love for all the saints. I believe it's genuine because there's evidence. In Colossians 1.4, since we heard, he'd never been in Colossae, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints, that gave him confidence that their faith was real. 1 Thessalonians 1.3, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you towards one another grows ever greater. I'm confident your faith is growing because I see your love growing, and they're connected. You see the same thing in Peter, 1 Peter 1, 22 to 23. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls, speaking of salvation, for a sincere love of the brethren, Fervently, fervently love one another from the heart, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but through the living and enduring word of God. I believe you, you've come to faith. It's, it's real faith. You've been born again. And I see the evidence of it in your love for one another. And then lastly, John, who mentions uh, loving one another more than, than any of the others, he says in 1 John 3.23, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. So consistently in the New Testament, the epistles tell us that love for other believers was a distinctive mark of genuine faith in Christ. And so that brings us to this passage. And so let's take a look at uh, what it says, walk in love. Verse five, therefore, or verse one, therefore, he's referring back to God's actions 
in chapter 4, verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Because God has forgiven you, because you've come into this new relationship uh, through Jesus Christ with the living God, you should model that same behavior, being kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving. He says you should be an imitator of God as a beloved child. The word, from Im the word imitator comes from the Greek word from which we get the word mimic from. Most of you have at some time or another seen a family with a small child where the dad is doing something and right behind him is the child mimicking his dad's actions, imitating what his dad is doing. And of course, one of the, the goals of, of fatherhood is to leave a good path for your child so that they can imitate that and, and it'll be good for them. And so Paul says here, listen, you are children of God. You should be mimicking, you should be imitating God's actions. And so he says, walk in love. Um, Wearsby in his commentary says, uh, commentary says, this verse is the overarching foundation for the last three walks that we're going to look at. In 1 John 4, 8, God is love, therefore walk in love. 1 John 1, 5, God is light, therefore walk as children of light. 1 John 5, 6, God is truth, therefore walk in wisdom. As God lives and acts, we should live and act. Last week, we had five examples of how God would and does act. He speaks the truth. He's righteous in his anger. He's generous. He gives words that build up and are a gift. And he forgives. And he calls us to, to live that way. But now we're, we're talking about a new dimension. The, the changed life walk was zeroed on your mind. So he says in verse 23 of uh, chapter 4, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self. It's aimed at your thinking. Have a different set of values. Have a different viewpoint. Have a different way of thinking. But this one's going to be aimed at our heart. It's a, going back to one of the ones I used before, it's a real heart changed walk, not just outward conformity, not just doing what is right, but rather doing what is right that flows out of a right heart attitude. God wants us to share his heart. And Christ is our example. Hebrews 2.10, when we studied the book of Hebrews, he's our trailblazer. He's the one who marks the path for us to walk, who walks it ahead of us. And so we see here, walk in love, just as Christ also loved you. This isn't a path that Christ never walked. This isn't us doing something, being sent on a mission where there's no path marked out for us. No, Christ has marked out this path. He's walked it ahead for us. How did he love us? Well, it says, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. That's what he did. He gave himself up for us, even to the point of death on a cross. And he gives a couple words here, an offering. 
The idea of offering is willingness. When you offer something, you're doing it voluntarily. It's, it's an expression of your willingness to do this. Sacrifice indicates the cost of the act. For love to be love, it must be done willingly, even if it costs. And we see that, don't we, with Jesus Christ. He set his face as a flint to go to Jerusalem. He knew what waited for him in Jerusalem. There used to be a song that we sang years ago, I was on his mind when he was on the cross. He did it willingly. He knew the cost, and he did it anyway. And God says, I want to create in your heart that same heart that I have. And then he says that this kind of action is a fragrant aroma. Some of the Old Testament sacrifices, the burnt uh, sacrifice, the, the grain offering, the peace offering, were described as sweet, fragrant offerings. Christ's sacrifice was a fragrant aroma to God. Our acts of love can also be a fragrant aroma to God. In Philippians 4.8, Paul describes the Philippian financial gift to him as a fragrant aroma and acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Paul's saying here by the Spirit that our lives are meant to be a continual fragrant aroma to God in a world marred by the stench of sin. Years ago, I was on a gospel team in in Turkey, and we had to ride a bus to, to get from one place to another. And when you get on a bus in Turkey, they come down the aisle, and you put your hands out like this, and they fill it with uh, basically cheap perfume, and you splash it all over yourself. And for the whole bus ride, you smell this wonderful scent of lemons or orange or, or whatever it is. And when you get up to get off the the bus, you discuss, someone four or five seats up had a goat with them on the bus, and, and it uh, went ahead and, and uh, had some manure on, on the bus, and someone else was very sick. You never smelled any of it, because you, you had, it, it got, we rode buses a couple times. I always looked forward to that perfume. <laughs> God looks forward to when we act in love, and he gets that fragrant aroma. You know, no one else may see or know of your loving act, but God always takes note of it. And so that's the challenge. I want you to have this changed heart. I want you to have this, this walk that is so closely tied to the heart of my son that it identifies you as belonging to him. Did that surprise you? You know, when I grew up, uh, people would take trips and, and they would make slides of their trip and you would come over and they would have a slide projector and you would watch slide after slide. My brother used to take pictures of, of 
different kinds of bugs and and uh, and we would watch hundreds of, of slides of, of his bugs. S smart people would occasionally slip in another slide that was totally different, just to kind of wake you up, get your focus back. If you can read from verses 1 and 2 and then hit verse 3, and it doesn't cause you to stop, well, it should. Just like this picture. What, what, what's going on here? Because in verses and, and verses on down to uh, verse 7, which some people try to tie into the next walk, walk in, in light, and certainly you can see how it's going to be different than the walk in light, but most of these um, walks are preceded by the word therefore. And so this section really fits with this walk in love. But see, there's another passion out there. A passion the world offers that's so different from the love of God that's spread abroad in our hearts. And so Paul takes that up and, and it's so different. It ought to shock us. You see, there's a, a battle for your heart. You might not think of showing love as a spiritual battleground, but it is. The first word I put up there was counterfeit love. And this is a little aside. It's in this passage, but um, I had a friend when I was in college, and he had been raised in the cults. And so he had a heart for people who were in the cults. He witnessed to people in the cults. He was always trying to, uh, to uh, get them to see the truth of the gospel. He, he was one of the few people I, I knew that when a Jehovah's Witness landed on his doorstep, he, he welcomed them with a big smile because he couldn't wait to talk to these people. Um, and he led a young uh, man who was caught up in Jehovah's Witnessism to the Lord. And so he brought him to the local church that, that he was in and uh, was discipling him. And then he moved to California. He needed to be out there with his family. There were some things going on. And so he moved to California. And he said to me, since I was visiting this uh, other uh, church every so often, he said, listen, check up on him when you, when you are down there. And so I did. And, and then one time I came and he wasn't there. And I said to the people, where is this young man? They said, well, you don't know. He stopped coming. And so I told my friend in California, and uh, shortly after that, he came back to Iowa to look for this guy. And when he found him, he said, why aren't you going to the, to the local church? And he said, well, you know, there was so much care in the Jehovah's Witnesses. And when I came to this church, I didn't get that kind of care, and I missed it. And so I tried some other evangelical churches in the area, and, and they, compared to Jehovah's Witnesses, they all seemed cold. And he says, I know they don't have the truth, but the fellowship, I, I need that. Shortly after that, I, I read an article just a week or so later in... Um, Christianity Today or Moody Monthly, it was one of those two. And it said, Satan's at work 
creating a counterfeit love amongst the cults and trying to destroy the love of God amongst the people of God. And it is a, a sad thing that they would outlove us. And so Paul lays out how he how the world attacks us and tries to destroy our love. And so he says, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. He talks about impure passions. These are lifestyles that are incompatible with the life that comes from God, but they have a sense of passion about them. Sexual immorality, any kind of sex out, uh, between a man and a woman outside of uh, marriage. Impurity. It has the idea of anything unclean or filthy. Um, if you come down to verse 12, it says, for it is, even, it is disgraceful even to speak of those things. It includes pornography. Anything that appeals to our senses in the realm of sexuality. And then he says greed. Uh, some versions say covetousness. This is a little Greek word that simply takes the words more and have and puts them together. I must have more. And here, many commentators put it in context that if you get involved in this passion of, of pursuing uh, sexuality outside the boundaries God has set, it creates an, uh, an unsatisfiable thirst that pulls you and pulls you and pulls you. Years ago, I was in the home of a person in another assembly and uh, later next time I came to the assembly he was gone and I said where is he they said well uh, he, he, this man was the head of, of a school board of a very big Christian school um, and he was very active in the assembly very personable and they said well he wanted in the leadership and all the elders as we met and prayed just said no there's not something right here so he's left us he's gone to another church that man was living a, a double life he was heavily involved in pornography he began to want that that lifestyle he got very involved in it so much so that he he knew he wanted to keep the double life going. He knew he wanted to go farther. This must have more, this greed in this area. And he knew his wife stood in the way. So one night he smothered her. Well, forensic scientists can pick up on that. They arrested him. Actually, his preteen daughter had actually been up and heard the struggle. And so he's, he's in prison for life. But he had actually been pulled into that area. 
There's a passion. And it's not just sex. There's a passion to be popular. There's the passion for fame. There's the passion for money. These are passions that the world wants you to give in to that'll pull you away from a passion for Jesus Christ. And so Paul lays these things out. And he says, listen, there's a battle for your heart. Every time you click on the computer, there's a battle for your heart. Don't lose that battle. He comes on down and he says in verse 4, And there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. The Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Lord Jesus said that. These three words are found only here in the New Testament. And it is true. I was once on an airplane, and the man next to me ordered, ordered coffee when they came around with the refreshment thing. And wanting to make conversation, I said, so do you like coffee? He spoke about coffee for the next 40 minutes. This man went to an uh, importer, selected his own beans, had his own grinder that, with different settings that he could grind them. He um, had his own roaster so he could roast them. And he had just bought some kind of a, a deal where you put the water and the beans, the hot water and the beans in, and then there's a press that presses the, the bean ground beans down, and he said, and my press is platinum because that doesn't affect the taste of the coffee. Even gold will affect the taste of the coffee. And after about 40 minutes, he said, so you like coffee? And I said, no, I, I never touch this stuff personally. <laughs> and you know what happened? He stopped talking to me. <laughs> he had a passion, and it came out in his speech. What comes out in your speech? And so he talks about some kinds of speech. He says there must be no filthiness, disgraceful. Actually, I'm sorry, that is the word in verse 12 where it says it's disgraceful even speak of those things. It, it is the kind of, of language one would be ashamed of in other surroundings. Some people uh, translate it obscenities. I was at Emmaus. I had a floor leader. We tried that man man's heart a great deal but one of the things we were amazed about was his speech was always beyond reproach and we said how did you do that he said well he said I was a marine drill sergeant and I got saved and I went to the local church because that's where you're supposed to go as a Christian and I was there in my dress uniform and a little kid came by I saw it happen in our our uh, fellowship hall just a few minutes ago and he bumped me and I spilled that coffee down in front of my uniform and I said what I would have said on the drill field and all conversation stopped and everybody turned and looked at me and I said I have to get rid of that speech because it's not appropriate here and so he talks about um, filthiness in our talk. He talks about silly talk. This is the word we get 
uh, we get the word moron, moron from this. Some people uh, translate it foolish talking. Other people translate it stupid words. It, it's not small talk where you're talking about the weather or somebody's family or, or even uh, how, the cub, or how the Bears will beat the Packers this year. Um, but it's, it's senseless talk that produces nothing of value. In fact, Trench uh, says, if you use the word foolish talking here, remember in Proverbs, foolishness, fool, and, and folly are always words that have a negative ethical uh, sense to them. So these are words that you see a bunch of guys getting together and they're challenging each other and they're talking back and forth and it leads them to do, go do something really stupid and dumb. That's the kind of words these are. And then he says, coarse jesting. These are words where someone turns um, off-color jokes it really has the idea of a person who has a mindset who can turn any situation into an off-color joke or story. And Paul says, listen, that kind of speech shouldn't be heard from the mouth of a believer. Out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. There are passions out there that Satan and the world want to bring into your life to keep you, to give you a cold heart towards Christ, to give you a cold heart towards the work that God would want you to do. He says, no, our, our mouths ought to be marked by the giving of thanks. And then he gives three, three principles uh, the first one here in verse 5, for you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater, see, the one who constantly wants more, his God is what he's pursuing, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. There's two kingdoms And they're incompatible. You can't pledge allegiance to both. Now in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 11, Paul says the, the same kind of words with the statement, such were some of you, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of our God. He's saying salvation produced a change. And if there's no change... If these passions fill your life, if they fill your words, then maybe you're not his. Years ago, I was part of a real estate firm, and, and the real estate firm I was part of, it was all, all believers. And uh, there was a big real estate firm in Cedar Rapids that had dominated the market down there, and so he was selling franchises. And so uh, our firm was thinking about buying this franchise, and so we went down, and we were, he mixed our guys in with all of his guys, and, and we were watching a PowerPoint presentation. 
And, and he offered a lot of good stuff. I mean, it, it, he really had put together a very fine, um, but he knew from, from the head of our real estate firm that we were Christians. And so I'm sitting with a bunch of his, his uh, salesmen, and he's showing these slides. Now, I'm sure these guys have seen these slides about 100 times. Okay, so they're pretty bored. But at one point, they begin to get real interested. And then the slide that they were expecting didn't come up. And they began whispering to him. Apparently what this guy had done was put pictures of scantily clad young women scattered through his presentation to pull all of his salesmen back to paying attention again. Recognizing that he was dealing with Christians, he pulled all those pictures out. Because he recognized, I think, there's two kingdoms here. And they're incompatible. And if I'm going to sell this to, to this group, I can't have those pictures in my prison. He later came to faith. And someday, I hope maybe in heaven to ask him, was that a key moment when you were confronted with the fact that there's two kingdoms on this world? The kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God's son. And they're incompatible. And so he says, listen, if you're a believer in Christ, you know the certainty of the fact that those who are in the kingdom of this world, who give their allegiance to the kingdom of this world, they're not inheritors of the kingdom of God's dear son. You know that. And then he goes on. And he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. You know, this world wants to, uh, uh, there are gray things, but in this area of the two kingdoms, it's pretty black and white. But the world wants to kind of smear the edges and, and make, it, make it less clear. And so he says, listen, don't let anybody come to you with all these arguments and, and deceive you because the wrath of God is coming. In 2 Peter 3, it says there are coming mockers who, who mock and say, where's the promise of his coming? Everything's continued since the, the beginning. And Revelation tells us those same people will be saying on a day when there's these great earthquakes for the mountains and hills to fall on them to cover them from the wrath of the sun. The wrath of God's coming. We have co-workers, we have friends, we have relatives. The wrath of God's coming. And the only refuge is Jesus Christ. And so he says, listen, don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. This is the truth. This is where you get the truth. This is where you have to line your life up. And the world will give you a lot of song and dance. That, you know, uh, they have a siren song that, that wants to put you into to a, a tra trance. He says, don't believe a word of it. And then he says, 
Verse 7, therefore do not be partakers with them. First Corinthians 15.33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. We are called to be imitators of God, not of this world. And so Paul says, listen, you need a changed heart. God did change your heart at salvation. The love of God has been poured out in your life. And because you know the God of love, you can love. Satan wants to stop that. Satan wants to hinder that. Satan wants to, to put passions, loves in your life that will minimize and, and destroy that. So that people can't identify Jesus Christ by knowing you. Well, what do we do with these things? At the heart of the Christian life is the love of God that's poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. God's done that work. There is a battle to undermine the distinctive mark of our faith. Satan and this world want to introduce other passions to destroy our walk of love. The key is to immerse yourself in Christ's love. Go back to chapter 3, verse 18. Paul's praying, I hope that you get a hold of this. And so he says, well, verse 17 for context, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. He says you need to immerse yourself in the love of Christ. You need to know the love of Christ. You need to be grounded and rooted in that love because Satan's going to try everything he can to put something in its place. The Lord Jesus told the story of the tares and the wheat. And Satan wants to sow tares in your life. Well, one last thought. Turn back, if you would, to the last verse of Ephesians. You know, there's only six chapters in Ephesians, but the word love is found 15 times. And Paul ends this book with these words, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus with an incorruptible love, with a love that the world can't taint, can't tarnish, can't minimize. This was written in 60 AD. 35 years later, the Lord sent a letter to Ephesus through John. And he said to them, you have left your first love, Repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place. If you went to Turkey today and went to Ephesus, it's a dead city. There's no church there. If you go to Smyrna, there is an evangelical church there. Some point in time, and, and God, in, in his knowledge, uses Paul to talk again and again and again to Ephesus about this love, walking in love. 
and they let it slip through their fingers. And so the Lord Jesus warns because the Lord Jesus is serious about our hearts. I was once told that you can go all over the East Coast and find buildings that once were churches that are now antique stores. Sometimes it's because they abandon the truth, but sometimes it's because they lose their first love for Jesus Christ. Proverbs 4.23 Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Sadly, written by a man who married 700 wives, 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart from the living God. And he knew that principle. And now you and I are going to go out those doors into a world that says, I have a whole bunch of things to offer your heart. And the Lord Jesus says, give your heart to me. Let's pray. Father, we do pray. We live in a world, and, and like that old illustration of the frog slowly being heated up and being boiled up because the water changed so easily. Our world, we've, we've watched it become more and more uh, harsh and hostile towards you. But Lord, we pray that in all that, there would rise to you such a fragrance because we love the Lord Jesus and we want to walk as he walked. So we pray that you would help us to guard our hearts. We pray that you would give us insight and you would impress on us that certainty that no one who lives in the, in the passions of the world can inherit your kingdom. That we are not deceived that your wrath won't come against those things, that we don't become partakers of the world's lifestyle. Keep our hearts true to the Lord Jesus, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.